open your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2, and we are uh, con- continuing this evening our, our study of this, uh, the first ten verses of this second chapter, and we're talking about the, the vindication of Paul's apostleship, the arguments that he makes for his apostleship. And this section of Scripture is, is very important to us because uh, authority for our doctrine has to be established before we can have any confidence in it. In, in the history of Christianity, there have been many people that have, that have come along and they've taught new doctrines, aberrant doctrines, things that are not found in the Word of God. They brought some new teaching and have really tried to twist scriptures in order to find support for what they teach. And in some cases, they even introduce new things that they say are revelations that came from God. And one of the first doctrines that we have to be absolutely sure of is that we have the inerrant Word of God. We have to have confidence in this. We have to know that we have the completed Word of God. And we have to know that the doctrines that that we have, that we know now, are the doctrines that God wants us to have, and He's not going to give us anything new. And so we have, con- have to have confidence in the, in the 66 books of the Bible that this is everything that God has for us. Because if we fall short of that and don't understand it, then we're going to fall into, we'll fall into all kinds of rabbit holes, you might say. And the problem with that is there aren't rabbits at the bottom of the holes. There's a serpent that's waiting to destroy us. Now this section of Galatians is to establish... Paul's doctrine as being the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And he he was given authority by God to to preach this. And Paul maintained that we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so he taught that there is no merit in anything that we do, that our righteousness comes from the obedience of Christ that's given to us. And so the occasion... Uh, for this discussion is is a false charge that had been made against Paul. There were people that came out of the Jerusalem church and they came to the churches of Galatia and they told them that Paul was preaching a wrong gospel. Uh, They said justification by faith is not enough, but that in addition to this, there must be uh, circumcision, that Gentiles must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And in the midst of this controversy... Paul's authority as an apostle was being challenged. Now, we've discussed that at length. I've spent a lot of time talking about that, so I want to keep us moving here. So I'll shorten the stroke just a little bit to tell you that previously that Paul had made a trip to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles there and to confirm with them that he and the other apostles were teaching the same doctrine of justification. And, and this was for the purpose of meeting this charge that's been made by the Judaizers that there was no division with Paul and the apostles on this subject. And, and as we'll see in the, in the beginning of, of this lesson tonight, that there was a strong resolution that was formulated by the Jerusalem apostles denying that circumcision had anything at all to do with justification. Now, three weeks ago... We left off with number six on your outline, and I realize it's been a long, long time ago, but I'm going to start with number six rather than going all the way back through the rest of the outline. Number six was the conference at Jerusalem. Now, let me just review a little bit here to tell you where we get to in in these verses that we're in. Uh, Verses one and two tell us that, that Paul 
and Barnabas and Titus went to Jerusalem. And there, Paul says, he communicated unto them or communicated unto the church there, to the apostles. He says, that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. So Paul went to them and said, this is what I preach and this is the gospel as I understand it. So he goes on to explain that he made that trip because the Judaizers were trying to bring Gentiles in that church back under the law or the bondage of the law. Now, Paul was unrelenting on the subject. He he would not compromise it. Justification by faith alone is a non-negotiable in the Christian faith. It is the very core of the Christian doctrine. And so uh, he was not going to compromise on the issue. I wish I could tell you stories, all the stories there are, about claims that people have that they do believe in justification by faith alone, but actually in practice they they deny it. This was not a theological theory for Paul. This is the gospel by which we are saved. And without this gospel, we're damned. Now, verses 5 and 6 show us some of Paul's indignation over being challenged in his doctrine. In verse 5, he said that he wouldn't give even an inch to these people, that these Judaizers that were teaching uh, this doctrine. He wasn't going to compromise with anybody just to get along, not to get everybody calm and settled down. He wouldn't do that because he knows that if this issue is not right, then the gospel of Christ is destroyed. Then secondly, in verse number 6, he makes a sarcastic comment which at first seems to be a little bit disrespectful to the apostles, but it's actually intended to show his utter disgust at being constantly challenged. And so in effect, this is what he says in in that verse. He says, if you think that the apostles in Jerusalem are such hot shots, then let me tell you what the hot shots said. You're worried all the time about what the apostles in Jerusalem think and what they say. And he says, I'm not worried at all. They don't make or break me as an apostle. That's, that's a little sarcastic. And it sounds like that Paul is putting the apostles down, but he's not doing that. He, he says here, in conference, they added nothing to me. Well, in other words, we had, a, we had a conference about these things, and nothing that they said took away anything that I've been teaching. Nothing they said was new to what I've been teaching. So they gave me nothing new, and they took nothing away from me. And then he goes on through in verses 7 and 10 to discuss the outcome of that conference and, and how that resulted in a united apostolic front. Now, that takes us to where I want to start tonight, and that's in verse number 7. So if you look in chapter 2, verse number 7, he says, But contrarywise, when they saw, that's when the apostles saw that the gospel of uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of circumcision was unto Peter, For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, that means Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I was also forward to do." I want you to imagine for just a moment that you are a member of one of these churches in Galatia. There's an argument going on in your church. There's a split. There's a division among people. And there's two factions in the church. One faction says that we are for Paul. And Paul's teaching the truth. He's given us the truth about the doctrines of Christ. He's given us the truth about justification. 
But then there's the other faction of the church that says, well, there are these people that have come from Jerusalem, and they say that the apostles have sent them, and they say that they're in agreement with the apostles, and the doctrine that they're teaching is not the same thing that Paul says. And so we need to give these people a fair hearing. We need to consider this. We need to discuss it and see if they're telling the truth or if Paul is telling the truth. And so you, you discuss this issue for a while in the church, and the problem is there's nobody in the church that really knows enough about Scripture, has been saved long enough to, and been taught enough to actually deal with the question. And so you have to have a way to settle it. And the way that you settle it is you contact the Apostle Paul. He's the one who founded the church. And then you ask him, did we understand you correctly? Do, do you agree with the apostles in Jerusalem? Because there's some guys here that say that they are teaching what the apostles in Jerusalem taught, and it's different from what you said. So can you please help us out on this and settle the issue for us? Well, Paul already is aware of this kind of a problem because he has dealt with Judaizers before. They've been a thorn in his side all along. And so he writes back to the Galatians at first a little bit incredulously that, that they would actually challenge his authority. And then he starts to tell them about what really happened when this issue of the Judaizers and what they taught came before another church, and that was the Antioch church. The issue of circumcision was raised in exactly the same way, and the Judaizers were doing in Galatia what they did in Antioch. And so he tells them the story about going to Jerusalem to settle the matter, hopefully once for all, but unfortunately it's not once for all because the Judaizers keep following him around and keep spreading lies to these new converts. They're up to the same old tricks. So this letter to the Galatians is to let them in, these people in Galatia know that the apostles in Jerusalem never compromised their doctrine with the Judaizers. But they maintained the same doctrine and they were also in agreement on Paul's apostleship. So the letter comes back to them and, and Paul says, there is no division. The apostles in Jerusalem are in agreement with me and not only did they agree with me, but they were, they were thrilled that God had given me as strong a calling to preach to Gentile people as he did to Peter who was called to be the apostle to the Jews. And he says, we're all in agreement. We shook hands on this and we resolved that we were going to preach this gospel to everybody in the world. Now, the sermon that I'm preaching to you on, on uh, this, this particular subject, agreement on the gospel, is getting longer and longer all the time. It keeps adding parts. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to draw a line underneath agreement on the gospel, part number five, and we're going to suspend that, and we're going to do an excursus on Acts chapter 15. Now, somebody's already, I heard whispering around and was asked the question, what in the world does the word excursus mean? And uh, this is the, the spelling. I, I changed the spelling here. The, uh, uh, the, there's another spelling for it, but this is the more common one. It's E-X-C-U-R-S-U-S, which simply means a departure from our regular subject, or as uh, we put it this way, we're taking a, a side path, a little journey down a side path, and we're going to talk about Acts chapter 15 and the conference that took place in Jerusalem. So I'd like you to turn there, if you would, and... Uh, uh, I want to remind you while you're turning there that this is a council that took place in Jerusalem, but this is not a council that eventually led to the establishment of Roman Catholicism and uh, preceded various other church councils that, councils that established their doctrine. One 
thing that we absolutely do not agree with Protestants on, and of course we don't believe with, uh, agree with the Catholics on, is that the Roman Catholic Church was ever a true church. In, in our opinion, and we think by the Word of God and what we know about history, Roman Catholicism was always a schismatic from the very beginning. They never have been right. They never have had true doctrines. And we have our doctrine not because they gave it to us. We have it in spite of them. We have the truth. Now, the real truth of the matter is if Roman Catholicism had been in existence when this first church council took place, they would have been on the side of the Judaizers. Because, in fact, they're on the side of the Judaizers now. Only they replace circumcision with a thousand other things that have to be done for a person to be saved. And then really in the end, none of that matters anyway because uh, when you die, you have to go to purgatory and sweat off the sins anyway. So the Roman Catholics have a doctrine that says you're not justified until they say you're justified. And if you don't agree with them, then they'll just add some more things on top of it that you're going to have to do and you'll never see the light of eternal day. So... This is not a council that leads to Roman Catholicism, not in any way, shape, or form. So we go on here in Acts 15. We're going to kind of break it down as we go. Uh, verse number 1 says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now there's the statement of the problem. The issue is circumcision, and the Judaizers say you cannot be saved without it. Verse 2, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. Now what Paul had done, and he and Barnabas had done, they had met these Judaizers face to face. They argued with them. They spent a long time arguing with them and going over this very issue, and there could be no agreement. There was no convincing these people. And so the, the church at Antioch was determined to send them to Jerusalem to confirm with the church that they fully supported, with the Jerusalem church, that they fully supported justification by faith alone. Now, verse 3, it says, And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. Now, I hope that you like that part, because here Paul says, as long as we have to go to Jerusalem, as long as we have to do that, then let's do some preaching along the way. Let's do some witnessing along the way. Let's stop into the churches and tell them what mighty things that God has been doing among the Gentile churches and, and how people are being saved. And then it says here that everybody just had a good time knowing that, that God would save anybody, anybody who believes. Verse 4 says that when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done unto them. So here's the beginning of the council. Paul and Barnabas get together with the Jerusalem church and they start to describe this controversy that, that had happened in the, in the Antioch church. And this is why they've come, what they've come to discuss. Now, verse number 5 says, But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. So when Paul and Barnabas had related their story to the church, there were Christians, or we assume that they're Christians here, that they were converted Pharisees, and they'd already made up their mind what the answer to the question should be. They had decided, we're siding with the Judaizers. 
we're taking their part in this. And we agree that people need to be circumcised. Gentiles need to be circumcised. So they took up the banner to defend the Judaizers. And they expected that Peter would join with them because Peter's the apostle to the Jews. And so they expect Peter's going to be in agreement with this too. Now, we're not going to talk about Peter this week. We'll, we'll get to his response to the matter next week. But what's the underlying issue? Well, the real root of this controversy is what we call legalism. And legalism is the belief that there is some ritual or there is some point of law or many points of law, a number of points of law that have to be kept in order to salvation. Legalism is the antithesis of grace. It stands opposed to grace in every area, and it's what Paul called a false gospel. In the first chapter of Galatians, this was what he said. This is another gospel. It's not the gospel of Christ. Now, as we look at this, and and we've talked about legalism on on different occasions, but I, I still think it's necessary for us to clear up some misconceptions about what legalism really is. There are some times that that the term legalism is used wrongly, and it's applied to the wrong people. Now, among Baptists, it's kind of common to call anyone who holds to a biblical standard a legalist. And so if we teach people how they ought to live, how people should dress, and how they should talk, then the term legalism is applied to that. And, And let me say to this, that living by a godly standard is not necessarily legalism. And that's because the Bible tells us there is a way to live. There's a right way, and there's a wrong way. And there isn't anything wrong living to live by a godly standard. And so you just can't blanket everybody who has a godly standard for living and say, well, that person is a legalist. Now, having said that, I have seen standards degenerate into legalism. And that's when the the standard itself becomes more important than a true relationship with the Lord. And so the standard becomes the thing that justifies. But standards never saved anybody. There's not a thing that we can do that saves people. And we also ought to understand that standards are desired because of the relationship that we have with Christ, not in order for us to get a relationship with Christ. See, when you talk about Christian growth... Uh, Christian growth is, is, is the outgrowth of regeneration. It's the work of sanctification that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. Now, the other trouble with standards is that there are many people that insist that if you don't live by our standard, then you're not what God expects you to be, and you're not a spiritual person. And so we, we tend to be judgmental of other, of other people, and we begin to judge the motives of their heart, and we measure those things by rules and regulations. And that ought not to be done either. There ought not to be anyone who says, well, I can tell that you are a spiritual person because you do this or you do that. You dress this way or you dress that way, so that automatically makes you a spiritual person. That's not the gauge of a person's spirituality. The gauge of their spirituality is what's in their heart and the relationship that they have with God. It's not in an outward form. And we're going to see that in the Gospel of Matthew as we study the 15th chapter where, where Jesus starts talking about the traditions of men versus the, to, to, to verse, versus the Word of God. So it's not an outward standard that's going to make people holy. 
So we need to understand that. But primarily, this is not the kind of legalism that this this scripture is is addressing. This is the problem of teaching that there is a particular work that you need to do to be saved. And here it's couched in the terms of circumcision. But as we go along, we find that circumcision actually represents any point of law, represents the whole law. Now, I want to ask some questions about legalism and legalists. First question is, what is the creed of the legalist? What is his creed? Well, number one, they deny the grace of salvation. Legalism is a very serious departure from the truth of salvation and of Christianity. And it's a very serious problem because this is a fallback position. I mean, this is the one that's most naturally assumed. It's the one that's most naturally appealing to people. And you know why? Because it puts value on what you do. It puts value on what people do. And, and, and it says that there, there are things that we do and we are not entirely dependent upon God for our salvation. We can depend in some way on ourselves. Now, in that first verse of Acts 15, it says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now, the plain teaching of the legalist, then, is that grace alone is not enough for salvation. Their words here are, except, except, and they mean except you do this, you can't be saved. So they're not making a claim here that, uh, that unless you undergo this rite of circumcision that you're not obedient to Scripture, and they're not making a claim that you don't please God if you do this, and they're not saying you don't properly identify with the rest of the Christians in your group if you don't do this. That's not the argument. They don't identify it with those things. They're saying you can't be saved. They're saying you can't be justified by God unless you do this. So when we read that scripture, we do need to understand once again that although circumcision is the thing that's mentioned here, that is just representative of anything that a person does. So we're really talking about an argument of law versus grace. And that's why Paul argued in Romans and uh, about the circumcision of Abraham. And he came to this conclusion in Romans 4, verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Then he also says in Romans 3, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, like all doctrinal error, the legalist stated his states their doctrine very cleverly. Now, we all know that at first the Jews were opposed to the Gentiles being saved at all. I mean, they, they, didn't, they, they weren't in agreement that Gentiles were under the covenant of grace. But when Peter visited Cornelius and, and uh, Cornelius, the, the Gentile, got saved, that kind of blew that idea out of the water. And so the legalist comes back and he modifies his statement. And he says... He no longer claims that Gentiles can't be saved. He just says now they can be saved, but they have to submit to some ceremony of Jewish law. Now, that's, that's the same problem that we have today, and that is that people are unwilling to accept the freeness of God's salvation. And so they add works to it. They add their systems of baptism and sacraments and church membership and a whole lot of other things. They put that on top of grace. But as Paul teaches, when you add something to grace, you no longer have grace. We're saved by the grace of God, plus plus or minus nothing. We're not saved by works because that makes us our own Savior. So he says in 
uh, Romans 11. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. And I'll add to that, that a person who believes or teaches that anyone can lose their salvation, that's also part of a false gospel. We are not saved by grace and then kept by our works. That's just another form of legalism. Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 3, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? And so the ability that you have to live for the Lord also comes by the grace of God. And you know what that means? It means that salvation in the beginning, salvation in the middle, and salvation at the end is all by God's grace. And the legalist denies that grace. Number two, the legalist devalues the work of Christ. Legalists don't believe that the death of Christ was entirely sufficient to save us. So they don't, they don't believe that the life of Christ is actually given to us or imputed to us as our obedience. Now, they don't state that directly in the text, but when they say, except you be circumcised, you can't be saved, then they're saying that the death of Christ alone is not enough to save, that it's insufficient payment because you have to add something to it. And very clearly, that's the teaching of Roman Catholicism. They have a crucifix that they wear around their neck, and that's supposed to represent the death of Christ, and that's what they believe, but you might as well hang the whole church around their neck. Because the the cross to them is just a footstool. It's just a stepping stone to this huge, massive cathedral of all things that they have to do. So anything that that takes salvation out of the hands of God and places that in any part in the hands of man, that is a devaluation of the work of Christ. So they don't believe that Christ did the same thing that we believe that Christ did. So if, if our works, you see, are as good as Christ's work in any area then we didn't need Christ in the first place. We can save ourselves. Second question, what is the corruption of legalists? Number one, they are defiant in the face of truth. Now, the legalists that that Paul confronted, they might not have had a a whole New Testament, but they had plenty of examples of truth. One I mentioned a moment ago, they had... Cornelius, they had the salvation of Cornelius and and the testimony that Peter gave concerning that. Cornelius was saved how? without circumcision. He was saved by a simple belief in the gospel of Christ. The Holy Spirit fell on him and his family as soon as they believed. And you have no mention in that scripture they were circumcised, nothing about their baptism, nothing about anything they did other than believing in Christ. But that doesn't make any difference to the legalist because in the face of that truth, they denied that truth. They said you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. And the legalist today, I hope you do understand this, the legalist today that claims that there is something like Roman Catholicism claims or other people claim that you need to do to be saved, they are under a greater burden of proof than the people were in the New Testament. And you know why? We have a completed New Testament. We have all the examples. We have the doctrines. We have the Word of God that makes this very clear. It's filled with evidence that's contrary to the doctrine of legalists. We have Romans. We have Galatians. And those are nothing less than apologies for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. If you ever had an apologetics class, then you understand these are proofs for justification by faith alone. Then you go to the book of Ephesians, and what does it say there? For by grace are you saved by faith, 
And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And you have Titus 3, verse 5. It says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Those are just two examples of many, many, many more that's found in the Word of God. Secondly, the legalist is corrupt. He's dedicated to the task. The legalist is dedicated to the task. Now, you say, well, is there anything wrong with being dedicated? No. Not if you're dedicated to the right thing. If you're dedicated to the wrong thing, it can be a very serious problem. Now, here, the legalists went all the way from Jerusalem to Antioch with their doctrine. That's a, that, in those days, that's a tough journey. That's 300 miles. And not only did they travel that 300 miles, but they made the circuitous route that Paul took and followed behind him all the way into Cilicia to the churches of Galatia, preaching the same doctrine. They were zealous for this. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar to you? Does that sound like what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees? Matthew 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. They are dedicated to their task. And folks, just because people are zealous doesn't make them right. What it means is that we have to be more zealous than they are. Now, here's the problem that with us and probably many, many Baptist churches and many people that know the truth is that we are outshone by people who don't believe the truth. They'll go to any kind of lengths they can to give people lies, and they put followers of truth to shame by, their, by, the, by the work that they do, by the zealousness that, they, zealousness that they have. They'll be on church on Sunday when we're not. And they'll talk to their co-workers when we won't. And they'll talk to the neighbors and the families of people around them when we won't do that. They're busy doing it. They'll confront people when we won't. And so we have to be more zealous than they are for the truth. Thirdly, they're dishonest in their teachings. Now, these Judaizers went to Galatia and to Antioch under a false pretense. They said, we have the authority of the apostles. Now, if you look down in verse 24 of Acts 15, the, the people in Jerusalem, the church there, wanted to make this very clear that they're not in agreement with the legalists. And so they sent letters for Paul and Barnabas to take back to the church at Antioch and, and to tell them that, 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 that the record needs to be set straight. Notice what they say in verse 24. For as much as we have heard that certain went out from us, troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, ye must be circumcised and keep the law. And listen, to whom we gave no such commandment. They misrepresented themselves. The church of Jerusalem didn't send them out. But what these fellows wanted to do, they wanted to make it look like they've sent, been sent from Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. And do you know this is the case with every wacko out there? They all claim that they came from God. Joseph Smith said he came from God, and uh, he, had, he had God's word, and Reverend Moon, he said the same thing. And I promise you, Joel Osteen believes it too. That he came from God or says that he does. But you know what that is? That's the devil's tactic. It's the devil's tactic to dress up and to appear something that he's not. The Bible says he transforms himself into an angel of light. And so a lot of what you see going on in the religious world today is the devil made up to look like he's a servant or his servants are teaching the things of God. It's the devil dressed up. 
That's why you have fake healers. That's why you have the tongues movement. That's why you have revelations. That's why you have all the self-help stuff. They all claim to have their origin in God. But it's the devil dressed up. This is what Jude says in the fourth verse of Jude. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says the false prophet creeps in unawares. And the picture that he gives there is is this, sneaking in by the side door. It's kind of what that means. It's like going to a sporting event without a ticket and jumping over the fence to get in. He says there's no authority for it. There's no authority for what they say. They're just using a devious tactic. They're a counterfeit. They, They make it look like they came from God. So legalists are corrupt. They're defiant. They're dedicated. They're devious. And that's why you have to keep your guard up and be looking out for those that are the uh, angels of the devil. Now, let me finish then with this, this question, and that is, what is the correction for legalists? Now, the, these fellows are not going to go unchallenged. Paul is resolute about the matter. He says he's not, he, he won't tolerate them for an hour, so what do they do? What does he and Barnabas do? Notice verse 4 again. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. Now, two things I'll point out for you very quickly, and we'll try to get, wrap it up here. How do you correct someone who errs from the faith? How do you correct them? Well, I'm just going to give you a couple of things that you can do, and, and there's more besides. A couple of things. Number one, appeal to the elders. Appeal to the elders. You see, Paul had confidence in the church at Jerusalem. He had confidence in that leadership. Now, I've already mentioned that Paul used this sarcasm back in the earlier verses there. And, and uh, he, he, he taught and he said that he had been given a direct relate, uh, revelation from God and that the apostles in Jerusalem didn't make him or break him as a, an apostle. They didn't make him better or worse. But that doesn't mean he didn't have confidence in them. He did have confidence in them. These are apostles that have been with the Lord. They knew Jesus personally. He had confidence in what they taught. Well, we're not apostles. I'm not an apostle. But but God has given the leadership of your church. He has entrusted us to be guardians of truths of the church. And so when someone comes along and confuses you with doctrine, and you hear something that's contrary to what you've heard, and you begin to doubt, go to your leadership. Go, go to your pastor. Go to people that you, have, that, that you have confidence in the church and talk to them because most heretical doctrines are dealt with very quickly and easily dispensed. Go to the leadership. Now, the Galatian church became upset. They lost their confidence in Paul, but not to worry here because Paul goes to the church at Jerusalem, the men who are the pillars of the church as he was and taught what he taught. And he had confidence in them, not because he needed to get answers that he didn't know, but he had confidence that, and and, and he had uh, the sense that this would be advantageous to the cause to go and to just prove, confirm his teachings with their answers. So have confidence and appeal to your leadership for the truth. Second thing you need to do is appeal to experience. Verse 4 says, and they declared all things that God had done with them. One of the best things that Paul could do was to look back and to tell the people to look back on the missionary journey to see what God had done. Gentiles came to know Christ. The Jews of the dispersion, many of them came to know Christ. 
And not once in any of those incidents were any of them told to be circumcised. None are told to keep sacraments, but they're saved. In Paphos, there was a, that first missionary journey, there was a high government official named Sergius Paulus, and he was saved. In Pisidian Antioch, there were Gentiles that the Bible says were ordained to eternal life in Acts 13, 48, and they were saved. In Lystra, there was a crippled man who had the faith to be healed, and he was saved. In Iconium, it says there was a great multitude, a great multitude, the Bible says, of Jews and Greeks that believed. And so they returned to the Antioch church, Paul and Barnabas, with this news, and they reported the, the conversions, how that God had opened up the gospel to the Gentiles, and Everybody could see that God was in this. What do we do when we want to confirm our doctrine? Are, are we really right about things? How, how do we correct the person that, that errs, errs from the faith? Well, you start to remind them of the mighty works that God has done through your church. Start to remind them of how God has blessed us in the past and the things that he's done with us and, and, and what he's doing with us now. Start to talk about those things. And you think about that. I mean, I... I this is not a part of my message, but it just came up today, the thing with Bill Adams. Now, there, there's a man that, that I saw a very definite change in his life because, because he, he got right with God and he, and he came back to a, to a church and he joined a church here. And, and the evidence that things are, are right, not, not you say, well, he's dying. Well, the evidence that things are right is the peace that he has about dying. The knowledge of knowing that this life is not anything more than, than the Word of God says, a vapor that passes away. It's here for a moment. It's gone. That our confidence is in what comes after this life. It's just a passing on to the other life that we have, an eternal life with Jesus Christ. So you look at that and you say, what's the experience? What, what's happened to us? And so we, we look at that and we say, as we sing every Sunday, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And so we feel that, and I hope you feel that. I, I feel that when I have people of the church come to me and said, you know, we really do appreciate hearing the Word of God. We, we really do appreciate hearing things explained. And, and we appreciate this, and, and we want to learn more. That, that shows me and tells me that people, that something's going on, that God's doing a work, isn't he? When people become, how many people are interested in God's Word? How many people are sitting at home and care nothing at all about what we're doing? Many church members do that, but there are people like you that say, give us more of the Word of God. We've got to hear more. Explain what it means. And so this is what we do. As long as God gives us strength, as long uh, as we can stand, as long as there's breath to breathe, then we keep preaching the Word of God. Now, I'm going to stop with that, and we're going to continue next week, and we're going to look a little bit more into the matter of legalists and and we're going to see how this council at Jerusalem set down forever this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And you say, why are you doing all this? Why do you spend all this time on this kind of thing? I want you to understand Galatians. I want you to understand the background. Why is the book here? Why, what's the purpose of it? Well, you're learning that. It's the problem that the church faced, and we face it every day. People that do not believe the truth of the gospel of Christ. It's the prevalent thing for people to be legalists today. And so we combat that with the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time spent in your, in your word tonight and for the interest of your people and, and those who come and sit a little bit longer to hear the word of God being taught. We pray, Lord, you bless us and, and uh, give us 
safe travels as we leave here tonight and, and bless all of these folks that we've talked about tonight and prayed for. Uh, we just pray your grace and your mercy would be upon them. Bless this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.